Okay, welcome back, and thank you for being here. Uh, I hope you're well. Uh, today is uh, Wednesday, February 26, 2020. And today we're going to look into the next sutta, in the second chapter of Sutta Nipata. This, this, this chapter, or this sutta, is number seven, called Brahmana Dhamika. Brahmana Dhamika. Uh, Brahmin principles, meaning Brahmana, or of the Brahmins, Dhamika, uh, law, or principles, or ways of the Brahmana, or the Brahmins. Tanasaro writes it up as how Brahmins, through greed, abandoned the good principles of their ancestors. And <clears throat> in the second link, uh, from Bhikkhu Bodhi's book called Sutta Nipata, Ancient Collection of Buddha Discourses with Commentary. Uh, if you can find it, <laughs> it's actually uh, on page 117 in that book, uh, down the page called The Tradition of the Brahmans, which is Brahmana Dhamika Sutta. So Dhamika translated as tradition or principles or the ways of Brahmana or the Brahmins. Uh, <clears throat> interestingly, it has a strong connection to the last sutta, which was uh, uh, Dhammacharya. And so let's, let me read uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, introduction to the chapter or to the sutta. He says, as the longest discourse in Chulavaga, meaning the second chapter of suttas in Sutta as the longest discourse in Chulavaga, this sutta would seem to fit better in the Mahavaga, or the next chapter, but it was probably included here because of the affinity between its title and that of Dhammacharya Sutta, the last one, which where we're looking at <coughs> the Brahmins, um, the Brahmin who, who uh, the uh, monk, sorry, who got into trouble and uh, ultimately was uh, one of, it was a stand-in perhaps for criticism of some of the monks in the Sangha already at that time, still during the life of Gautama. He goes on, another reason <clears throat> may be the parallelism between their themes, just as Dhammacharya Sutta decries the corruption besetting the monastic order, or based on one particular monk's story, the Brahmanaka, uh, Brahmana Dhammika Sutta ex deplores the deterioration that had taken a place among the Brahmins, meaning the Hindu group. Its theme, however, is not the inequity of the caste system, but the heinous cruelty of animal sacrifice, particularly of cattle. <clears throat> this sutta views this practice as a grave violation of the moral order that ushers in a multitude of physical and social ills. So now we're talking about the metaphysics and its consequences uh, of um, widespread uh, animal sacrifice, uh, animal slaughter for sacrifice, <clears throat> and how that leads to all sorts of problems. And um, I believe they're trying to bring back, or they've already brought back, um, uh, animal sacrifice of the, uh, of the third temple in Judaism in Israel and other countries do animal sacrifice. It's certainly not done in Buddhism. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism there's some issues about that but that's another matter. 
Certainly, uh, it seems that at the time, 2,500 years ago, there was widespread uh, animal sacrifice done by the Brahmins <clears throat> when it hadn't been done before. I don't think that's what's going on today. I don't think Hinduism is sacrificing. The idea that mm, the, the cow is sacred, sacred cow, um, seems to be what I've learned or what I saw. I didn't see any animal sacrifice going on there, but um, certainly it was happening 2,500 years ago. So going on, the 32 verses, it's a long sutta, can be divided into four groups, and this is where we get some good, some more helpful uh, explanation of the narrative, the narrative sequence of the sutta. And he said these uh, four groups might be, might be called, quote, before the fall, the initial fall, the deeper fall, and then after the fall, the fall in morality uh, of the Brahmins uh, being the priestly caste and uh, the conditions of society around them. The period before the fall describes an ideal period in the distant past when Brahmins were models of spiritual glory or spirituality. They were self-controlled, austere, pious, and simple in their way of life, revered by the population, the Golden Age. Uh, some observed lifelong celibacy. Others emulated their practice, meaning um, involved in some uh, other systematic celibacy, but not total. But even the least diligent among them, quote, lived within the boundary um, in terms of sexuality and other things meaning didn't didn't get into activity that was harmful for themselves and the society. They uh, were performing spir sacrificial services did, that did not involve animal slaughter. And that's a big difference. Um, and as an aside, um, a friend of mine who knows uh, Hinduism really well was talking about... <clears throat> um, uh, how, um, in many ways, uh, the the metaphysics of uh, sacrifice in Hinduism is very much a sort of deal making with higher dimensional entities. And I offer this sacrifice to you, the gods, meaning higher dimensional beings of some sort, many of whom might be astral, or it's not even clear. And I ask you to give me this and that and the other thing in return for my offering. This is a kind of um, transactional <laughs> or uh, bargaining or uh, bartering method uh, or mean or, or uh, aspect or theme in religion. And that's not what Buddhism's about. <laughs> it's not about, obviously, any kind of physical sacrifice. Uh, certainly early Buddhism, Theravadan, has nothing to do with sacrificing and making offerings to get stuff from higher dimensional beings. What's sacrificed is greed and ignorance and selfishness and attachment. And that sacrifice, the sacrifice of um, mind distortion, is what's, <laughs> what's encouraged. So rather than sacrificing... Uh, plant-based material or animals or human. Um, Buddhism, the sacrifice of Buddhism, or the sacrifice in Buddhism 
uh, is really a sacrifice of what we would call distorted uh, mental emotional tendencies, particularly the sacrifice of activities that would be called wrong livelihood, wrong speech, wrong action. The sacrifice of what's not to one's long-term welfare and benefit. The sacrifice of what's not necessary. The sacrifice of what's harmful. The sacrifice of attachment and wrong view. Attachment to central pleasure or some kind of uh, materialist seeking. Uh, and, and therefore a sacrifice of all that is considered a, a harmful karmic seeding seeding and making seeds uh, that uh, of thought word and deed ways of thinking and view uh, wrong view obviously because right view is helpful and wrong view is not and the sacrifice of wrong speech wrong action or activity that is associated with self-centered desire but that actually harms one and others in the long run that's the sacrifice uh, that Gautama was uh, suggesting, an inner sacrifice of the unnecessary and the harmful, and that which leads to uh, rebirth <clears throat> and, and potentially lower realms incarnation. So, as a result of all these people in the earlier time living within the boundary and doing sacrifices that didn't involve animal slaughter, quote, that population happily flourished, then... He goes on with uh, 299.305, meaning the, the Pali original standards verses. The initial fall then takes place. <clears throat> Covening wealth, cattle, and women, the Brahmins composed hymns, meaning they wrote up religion. Enjoining, meaning recommending or uh, demanding, suggesting, legitimizing, condoning, supporting, sacrifice, meaning animal sacrifice went to the kings with their newly rewritten religion, persuaded them to hold sacrifices which the Brahmins performed, right? So, <laughs> writing up new features in religion and then bringing them to the kings and saying, we'll perform these for you if you do this and you'll do, you need these sacrifices. It's in the religion and uh, you'll need them to get more stuff and we'll perform them uh, and you'll uh, for the cost of other stuff that you give us. <laughs> Very 3D repeater. So the Brahmins would report would perform in return for lavish rewards. Then, still not content, meaning um, the hunger continues, their craving tanha increased still more, and they descended into the deeper fall, the third phase. So from the initial mm, positive or uh, golden age conditions there's the development of uh, this sort of corrupted religiosity, the encouragement uh, of the powerful kings to do sacrifice, including animal, to get more stuff so that the Brahmins could get more stuff, and then it went even further. And that's, this is uh, normally how societies fall apart, or how individuals fall apart. Um, <laughs> they're in a certain phase which is relatively harmonious, but they feel somewhat deficient. And uh, you don't know what you got till you till it's gone. Um, they don't acknowledge what positive they have, but they see what they don't have. And an individual or a religion or a group makes changes that legitimize um, further craving. 
or legitimize the ways of obtaining their desires associated with uh, craving for more. And it begins, and then it goes even further, and then things fall apart. So then, in the deeper fall, they now composed hymns calling for sacrifice of cattle. So I guess that's now, in this, in this phase. So first the Brahmins were able to, were comfortable to live alone and perform their own rituals, um, not for the kings. Then they brought the kings in, then they brought them in even further and wrote more hymns calling for sacrifice of cattle, recited these to the kings who initiated widespread slaughter of cattle. At this point, the Brahmins had completely abandoned their original heritage, like Ahimsa, <laughs> harmlessness. The remaining verses describe the aftermath of that deeper fall. Diseases afflicting humankind increase, marital relations become disharmonious, social group and disorder spreads, and the population falls into the grip of sensual craving, as well as disharmony and conflict, as well as psychopathology. And um, <laughs> looks like that's what's going on today, right? End phase um, greed individual greed leading to collective uh, capture by materialist um, desire, self-centeredness, selfishness. And bear in mind that the sensual craving um, doesn't just mean uh, I want to eat and have sex and sleep a lot and wear silk um, and feel good, good feels, but it's also um, power. Uh, social power and domination and control of uh, individuals and resources. Um, the feeling or achievement of being able to order others around and eventually the power over life and death and um, that's considered sensual craving too in some way because it's very much associated with the five senses or the physical world or 3D space-time. It's not particularly mental or not only, it's significantly physical. Then, going on, Bhikkhu Bodhi continues, somewhat strangely, disregard for the doctrine of birth is included among the misfortunes that result from this, I, I have to add, widespread slaughter of cattle at verse or line 596, quote, the doctrine of birth, which is associated with the caste system, is identified with the view that one is a Brahmin by birth, a doctrine clearly rejected by the Buddha. So how does that, how can he be um, bemoaning or um, criticizing their, their departure from holding the doctrine while he's also criticizing in other places the doctrine? Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi explains <laughs> this sort of mm, paradox, which can't fully be explained. He says, yet here, disregard for this doctrine of um, Brahman by birth or the caste system by birth, yet here, disregard for this doctrine is lamented as a sign of deterioration, presumably by his interpretation, because it leads to intermarriage among peoples born into different castes. So, <clears throat> So, and then it goes on here. There seems to be here an incongruity between this line, just a line of the text, and the view expressed elsewhere that caste distinctions are purely conventional. And so, it's it's not clear to me if the line 596, which simply includes a few words that 
mean that uh, Gautama is lamenting that then in the fall or the after the fall condition of social disorder and um, um, great suffering among the peoples uh, they had also disregarded this doctrine that that one, it's just an inclusion of a few words that this too is something that they had uh, no, they were no longer following uh, as a problem, meaning it's, it's criticized, uh, they're criticized for no longer following this doctrine of birth um, considered therefore to be a, a loss of something valuable while el- elsewhere or mainly in Pali Canon Gautama criticizes the caste system so it may well be that <clears throat> his view if, if this is not a mistake I mean it could be some <laughs> Brahmin sympathizer um, I mean who put this sutta together right well, it was prob- presumably remembered by monks a few centuries after original delivery and recited at one of the early Buddhist councils that codified what monks, what certain monks with great memory remembered Gautama was saying and put into the Pali Canon as the suttas that were written down on palm leaf parchment. Uh, maybe there was a Brahmin sympathizer <laughs> remembering uh, the, a monk who had been a Brahmin uh, felt it was a tragedy that they had lost the doctrine of births too, and that's what he remembered Gautama saying. Or um, there's a metaphysics that um, intermarriage among people born into different castes can be a problem. So I don't know. You've got to kind of consider that yourself. There is a problem between people. Uh, marrying who are not compatible that doesn't mean necessarily of different races or castes but there can be uh, he may be uh, if indeed this is not a mistake or the uh, an infiltration by a Brahmin sympathizer who said uh, we, we they or they should have stayed with the caste system or stayed with doctrine of birth if it's not <laughs> a mistake or something strange like that added it may be some comment that uh, people who are not compatible should not get married. That's true. And people from different castes or people who are who have some radically different basis, um, whatever this was, um, were marrying or getting together uh, more so after uh, the fall or after in the phase of social disor- deterioration. And I think we can also see that too, like with divorces globally being higher now, I think, than before. Uh, some of that is probably better than the old, where people were, some people would have been staying together even though they shouldn't be or they don't get along, but because of the prohibition against divorce, now there's no prohibition or there's even encouragement of divorce in some cases. Uh, I don't think. I mean, it's better to have a happy marriage, right? But if they're not, it's probably better they separate, obviously. Uh, But at least it seems that what was happening um, in the fall phase as a consequence of widespread animal slaughter sacrifice was more intermarrying of uh, men and women that didn't get along 
or had marital conflict and that's not um, not not a good thing for anybody when many many people are getting together or marrying who can't get along with each other anyway um, that's um, a brief intro and the page link I sent from Amazon again um, gives the information if you want to order the book or look into it the Sutta Napata ancient collection of Buddhist discourses together with commentary uh, from Bhikkhu Bodhi who as usual did a great job so now <laughs> to the first link which is dhammatalks.org um, the collection of exclusively Tanisaro's material talks, writings, translations so um, let us uh, look into that uh, Brahmana Dhamika Sutta translated by Tanisaro let me see where our time is, we're fine so let me read it through and then give commentary after I have heard that on one occasion, it sometimes starts with thus have I heard, I personally like that thus have I heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove that's Jetawana Anatta Pindika's monastery then many Kosalan from Kosala, Kosalan Brahmins of great means old, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life approached the Blessed One on arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, they sat to one side, which is the normal way. As they were sitting there, they said to him, quote, Master Gautama, do Brahmins at present live in conformity with the Brahmin principles of ancient Brahmins? And Gautama says, no, Brahmins. Brahmins at present don't live in conformity with the Brahmin principles of ancient Brahmins. They reply, it would be good if Master Gautama described the Brahmin principles of ancient Brahmins if it wouldn't burden him. So they have a respectful uh, approach to their teacher, which is helpful if you think of <laughs> some source or person as a teacher. Uh, they go on, uh, Gautama goes on, says, in that case, Brahmin, uh, listen and pay close attention, I will speak. They reply, as you say, Master, the Brahmins of great means responded to the Blessed One, who then said, and this is the body of the sutta here, seers before were austere and restrained in mind. Abandoning the five strings of sensuality, they practiced for their own benefit. They had no cattle, no gold, no wealth. They had study as their wealth. They protected the Brahma treasure. They did not despise what was prepared for them, meaning food. Food set at doors, prepared out of conviction for those who seek. Prosperous lands and kingdoms honored Brahmins with multicolored clothes, bedding, and dwellings. Brahmins, protecting their principles, protected by law, were not to be violated, not to be beaten, no one could block them from the doors of any home. I think coming by for, um, for offering. For 48 years, the young Brahmins, meaning in a in certain phase of life, followed the holy life, Brahmacharya. Brahmins of old, meaning when they're older, 
practiced the search for knowledge and conduct. Brahmins went to no other caste, nor did they buy their wives, living together from mutual love. Having come together, they found joy together. Aside from the time after menstruation, Brahmins didn't engage in copulation. They praised the holy life, virtue, being straightforward, mild, austere, composed, harmless, enduring. The foremost Brahman among them, firm in perseverance, didn't engage in copulation, even in a dream. Those imitating his practice praised the holy life, virtue, and endurance. They asked for rice, bedding, cloth, butter, and oil. Having collected all that in line with rectitude, from that they performed the sacrifice. And, meaning uh, <clears throat> like uh, butter, fire sacrifice, but not animal. And in setting up the sacrifice, they didn't harm cows. Quote, like a mother, father, brother, or other relative, cows are our foremost friends. From them comes medicine. They give food, strength, beauty, and happiness. End quote. Knowing this line of reasoning, they didn't harm cows. Delicate, with large bodies, beautiful, prestigious, Brahmins were committed to standards of what should and shouldn't be done in line with their principles. As long as this lasted in the world, humanity prospered in happiness. But a perversion came among them. Seeing, little by little, the splendor of kings, women well ornamented, chariots yoked to thoroughbreds, well made with elaborate embroideries, houses and homes well-proportioned, planned and laid out, lavish human wealth, surrounded by circles of cows, joined with groups of excellent women. The Brahmins grew greedy. Having composed chants there, they went up to Okaka. Okaka is probably the king's palace residence zone. And saying to the king, You have much wealth and grain. Sacrifice! Much is your property. Sacrifice! Much is your wealth. End quote. Then the king, lord of charioteers, induced by the Brahmins, having performed these sacrifices, the horse sacrifice, the human sacrifice, samapasa, vajapeya, and niragala, these are types of sacrifice, gave the Brahmins wealth. Cows, bedding, clothes, women adorned, chariots yoked to thoroughbreds, well-made with elaborate embroideries, having had delightful homes, well-proportioned, filled throughout with various grains, he, the king, gave the Brahmins wealth. And they, receiving the wealth there, found joy together in hoarding it. Overcome by desire, their craving grew more. Having composed chants there again, more chants, they went up to Okaka again and said, quote, Like water and earth, gold, wealth, and grain are cows to human beings. This is a requisite for beings. Sacrifice, much is your property. Sacrifice, much is your wealth. End quote. Then the king, 
Lord of Charioteers, induced by the Brahmins, again, killed in a sacrifice many hundred thousands of cows. The cows, meek like sheep, giving milk by the bucket, hadn't, with their hooves or horns or anything else, done anyone any harm. But the king, grabbing them by the horns, killed them with a knife. Then the devas, the fathers, Indra and the Rakshasas cried out an injustice when the knife fell on the cows. Three were the diseases before them, desire, hunger, and aging. But from violence against cattle came 98, meaning 98 more diseases. This injustice of violence has come down as ancient. The innocent are killed, the sacrificers fall away from the Dhamma. This tradition, ancient, vile, is criticized by the observant. Where people see such a thing, they criticize the sacrificer. With the Dhamma perishing in this way, merchants are split from workers, noble warriors are split far apart, the wife despises the husband, noble warriors kinsmen of Brahma and any others protected by clan repudiating the doctrine of their birth, meaning that rebirth doctrine fall under sensuality's sway and that was I guess the condition at present uh, observed by Gautama, here spoken to the Brahmins from Kosala and then the final verse, when this was said, those Brahmins of great means said to the Blessed One, quote Magnificent, Master Gautama, magnificent. Just as if he were to place upright what was overturned, to reveal what was hidden, to show the way to one who was lost, or to carry a lamp into the dark so that those with eyes could see forms in the same way as Master Gautama, through many lines of reasoning, made the Dhamma clear. We go to Master Gautama for refuge, to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of monks, May Master Gautama remember us as lay followers who have gone for refuge from this day forward for life. So they basically uh, signed up then and there and um, dropped their allegiance to the Hindu Brahmin tradition and became Buddhist lay people. So you can take refuge um, in the three jewels, the three gems, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, as a lay person, obviously, not only as a monk. So, a Buddhist equals a person who has, quote, formally, uh, quote, taken refuge uh, in this kind of way. And in the in the old days, it was simply a matter of saying so to Gautama. Today, there's all sorts of ritual, and there's probationary time, and all sorts of things. Uh, <laughs> just like uh, Lao Tzu said in Tao Te Ching, um, with the advent of uh, ceremonialism, ritualism, to paraphrase, rites and rituals, there goes um, moral behavior. And so as time goes on, uh, the quality of um, the quality of understanding of the original teachings decreases. <laughs> uh, original teachings get modified, so uh, what was Buddha Dhamma from Gautama becomes uh, Theravada and then comes Mahayana, and then comes Vajrayana, or Lamaism. And 
with each further development through the centuries, uh, more people uh, are further in understanding from the original teaching, and then end up praying to the Buddha, or making a fat golden Buddha, or praying to the Lama, or seeing a Lama as the Buddha, and and um, uh, making some elaborate mm, cosmology, as in Mahayana, or substituting uh, a secondary belief uh, teaching about Bodhisattva, which Gautama taught, uh, but as um, in Jataka tales or his stories of past lives, as simply um, one on the way to achieving Buddha. Uh, that's all the Bodhisattva was then in the original Pali Canon, then in Mahayana and uh, Theravadan Lamaism, it gets um, magnified, exaggerated, uh, enhanced tremendously, particularly Mayana, uh, where Bodhisattva is everything. And um, then the understanding of Buddha also continues to decline or degrade. And um, people saying, uh, mind is Buddha, or Buddha nature, or Buddha in the palm of your hand, or all sorts of loose-minded talk, which is kind of nice and uh, simplistic and simple and easy and comfortable for some, but takes uh, the person further and further from the original Buddha Dhamma teachings of Gautama, which didn't say Buddha is mind or Buddha's in the palm of your hand or uh, everybody has an inner Buddha nature. He didn't say that. He didn't talk that way. And then later people <laughs> take later teachings and don't even know that there were earlier teachings. Mm. So it gets all messy. But Gautama knew that was going to happen. So, uh, <laughs> this is a very, very interesting sutta. So, in the early, so as, as uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi added, there are these four phases being presented. Uh, let me, let me see something. Uh, in this ideal early phase, the, the first phase of um, the Golden Age, uh, this is an interesting take on what, I mean, Gautama's take on early or original uh, Brahma, Brahmanism, which is Hinduism. <laughs> what, where these, where, where they were coming from and what was going on. <clears throat> Certainly, there was. Um, they, they were very much akin to um, forest yogis that uh, of Gautama's time, um, whether they're Buddhist or Hindu, or Buddhist or Brahmani Brahmanical. <clears throat> the forest yogi um, is not involved with the king and acquisition of material goods, and. Um, the early Brahmins lived akin to the Buddhist forest monks. Um, first they're being called seer, they were seers, and so that is another understanding of what a yogi is. A yogi, yoga, yogi from the uh, Sanskrit root yuk, yuk means to yoke, y-o-k-e, means to restrain. It's uh, restrained in mind, this phrase. Restrained in mind equals yoke, or yoga. The um, careful working in mind. That doesn't mean self-control or suppression. 
it means careful a careful um, uh, approach <laughs> to one's own mind and the point is uh, we're not our mind what I is is as much not mind as it is not body actually and so I is not body I makes use of body I is not mind I makes use of mind I is above body mind spirit I is ultimately you know we can say at the at a, a, essentially uh, I is the one infinite creator the one infinite creator here would be mm, <laughs> akin to what um, the Buddha mind I is Buddha well <clears throat> not exactly but certainly the essence of what I is um, is beyond light it's pre or transluminal light as intelligent energy now we're taking from the raw material we're talking about here identity <laughs> essential metaphysical identity right what is you said Ramana Maharshi what is I <clears throat> what is a self what is identity well um, identity is ultimately the experience of beingness um, the awareness that gives rise to self-consciousness self-consciousness is an add-on to universal unfettered infinite boundless awareness so the difference between awareness and consciousness awareness is unbound and intrinsically non-dual consciousness is intrinsically subjective and thus dualistic and thus associated with self-consciousness that's one way to look at it so uh, before the eighth fetter conceit in Buddhism right ten nine eight the ten is a basic avidya nine is restlessness or um, instability <laughs> vibrational instability or vibration as essential instability or called restlessness giving rise to the eighth fetter or conceit conceit is it is I'd say essentially subjective dualistic self-oriented separative self-oriented consciousness and so <laughs> it's a whole lot more than uh, having experience of bliss and unity and formlessness and saying I'm finished so it's the final it's the essential um, deep very deep mind or deep beingness sense of separative identity that also needs to be thrown out and like Ra said when they go into seventh density they'll be free of memory and identity hey hey and so uh, any personalized subjective sense of identity falls away when the entity leaves the level of higher self or unity and that's still not yet complete and perfect enlightenment but <clears throat> um, to call a, a yogi only a yogi to define the forest seeker as a yogi only or as a yogi indicates the mind restraint aspect of their seeking there's also the mind revelation or the revelation or their knowing the knowing aspect of what they're doing they're seeking by yok by restraint yok is not a <laughs> i'm not i don't have a mouth problem that's actually a word and so seeking by way of yok or yoking or mind restraint is the way to become a seek a seer so the seeker becomes a seer 
the seeker who's found becomes a seer, meaning one who knows. <laughs> I've got one who can see. And so <clears throat> in this uh, <laughs> in this darkened uh, collective of highly distorted, arrogant uh, folks, at least the leadership is profoundly arrogant and profoundly ignorant, uh, seeing is um, uh, seeing is a threat to the status quo. Seeing is a threat to leadership, right? <laughs> and so, or Orwell said, um, in a time of universe, something like in a time of universal uh, deceit. Uh, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. So, telling the truth is speaking what one sees. The yogi, by way of yok, or the spiritual seeker, by way of careful yoga, yoking of mind, restrained in mind, the second line, and the way of austerity. Austerity means really getting rid of what I don't need. Um dispensing with and eliminating and removing the unnecessary and the harmful. The unnecessary is to some degree harmful. Some is very, some is not much. But there's the harmful, much and little. There's the unnecessary. And then there's also a reasonable holding of what what we like, even if it's not quite necessary. So being not being a hard ass with oneself. But that's the way of yoke, or yoga, or yogi, or far seeker, or renunciate seeking, and that leads to knowing, which is seeing, which leads to being able to speak the truth, or speak truth, or speak important truth. <laughs> There's all sorts of truth, right? I can say, hey, the tree is green, that's a truth. But <clears throat> there are deeper levels of truth uh, that are profoundly important, and so the yoke the, the forest seeker, the true spiritual seeker, by way of renunciation, wise renunciation, detachment, by way of wise self-restraint, which is not uh, heavy-handed, I hate myself and hate my feelings or my desires, but careful restraint, particularly of speech and action, becomes a seer. The seer then is, a, is the knower. It's the Vishu, so the, he, he's followed Vishuddhi Maga, the path, the Blu-ray path, the path of careful development of awareness or careful self-development by way of avoiding what should be avoided and performing what should be performed and developing what should be developed and getting rid of what's unnecessary and harmful. Becoming a knower or a seer, one who can see, and a threat to the... Um, those that uphold the matrix of lies and illusion and ignorance and uh, the encouragers of the hellbound or the hellbound uh, advocates, the advocates in the hellbound community, because they are going to go to hell, a whole lot of them. <clears throat> it's very interesting. So, anyway, in the old days, in the golden age, so called, um, the Brahmin seekers were renunciate yogis. Uh, who then could see. They abandoned five strings of sensuality, which is um, touch, uh, touch, taste, smell, sight, hearing. 
um, five of the six perceptual sense doors, abandoning <clears throat> attachment, um, which for us is, I think, a, a careful um, renunciation or letting go or detaching from what we really know we don't no longer we no longer need. They practice for their own benefit. <clears throat> they were not bodhisattvas, <laughs> but they were harmless. So they were not harming anybody, but they were not trying to give up their lives for the benefit of others. Because in the end, what are you encouraging others to do? We would be encouraging others to practice for their own benefit. So we don't practice for our own benefit, but we encourage others to practice for their own benefit? Well, um, the real bodhisattva is the one who's practicing for his her own benefit and uh, a positive force for others to practice for their own benefit. And so there's a little, there's some kind of um, woolly-headedness in some of the discussion of bodhisattva in the Mahayana uh, and in the West today. <clears throat> so, uh, ultimately, um, it's each man for himself here, frankly. Um, man, woman, gender is secondary to what, we, what I is. But <laughs> this phrase, they practice for their own benefit, means... Um, they knew what was of long-term welfare and benefit, and they did it. And um, they were not social reformers. They were also harmless. And they were not hurting anyone, or they were presumably uh, encouraging others to practice for their own benefit, too. What else are you going to help? Help others sacrifice themselves for others to also learn to sacrifice themselves to help the world? To do what? To surrender themselves to help the others? Well, ultimately, one needs to practice for one's own benefit. And that begins with learning. And what's very interesting, um, they had study as their wealth. And in many ways, what it looks like to me here, or in some way, not many ways, but in some sense, these early Golden Age Brahmins <clears throat> um, were sort of um, like um, proto-Buddhists or... Um, quasi-Buddhist monks, um, though they had a different system cosmologically, they were deeply involved in morality <clears throat> and study, but instead of um, only practice, uh, certainly the whole, the, the, the teaching of Vipassana or um, Sati, mindfulness, as the way of um, going from Samadhi to Prajna, right? Shila Samadhi Prajna, the way of moving from mental concentration, deep states, higher states, expansion of awareness, awareness of unity, or boundlessness of space, consciousness, nothingness, no perception, all that, the higher jhanas. Those higher jhanas are <clears throat> achievements in samadhi, meditation. Uh, that's not the goal, but it's a means to the goal, being freedom from rebirth in the whole octave, or 31 planes, um, the Brahmins couldn't get that because the Buddha hadn't taught them that yet, it seems, he's implying. But <clears throat> they were very much involved in study and right conduct. Protected the Brahma treasure. Um, Tanisaro's note down the below is... Uh, ref the Brahma treasure refers to such mind states as development of goodwill, meaning metta. <clears throat> so they were developing 
the qualities of mind that led them to stable rebirth in higher dimensions, particularly Rupa, higher Rupa Loka and Arupa Loka. The higher jhanas, five, six, seven, eight, are called formless jhanas, higher states of samadhi. They, when well practiced, developed, lead the person who obviously would be very settled in morality and not harming anyone leads that practitioner to rebirth in, I would say, 6th and 7th density. Or at least 6th density. I don't know about anybody going from 3 to 7, but 3 to 6 is no problem. Or 5. Certainly, um, uh, high. The, the, when a person, I mean, this is the basic secret here, living a moral life, uh, meaning harmlessness, meaning wise restraint in speech and action particularly leads to freedom from 3D repeating that's called 51% harvestable 51% service to other harvestability same same is a solid understanding of sila or panchashila or the ways of morality, harmlessness non non um, damage, it's, it's forms of wu wei you can even say leads to freedom from required rebirth and third density when then that is added to or added uh, into samadhi, when then that becomes the basis of samadhi, and then beings have some development of the two stages of samadhi, you can say the first four jhanas and the second four jhanas. In the first four jhanas, one sets oneself up for rebirth not only in fourth density, but possibly fifth, I think. But when we're talking about um, development of the higher jhanas, the higher four, which are so-called formless, arupa jhana, then the entity sets them himself, herself, up for uh, rebirth in fifth and sixth density. So the form jhanas, rupa jhana, leads to rebirth in rupa loka, fourth and fifth density. Arupa jhana, <coughs> or the higher jhanas, or developments of samadhi, based in sila, lead one to rebirth in, uh, I would say, fifth and sixth density. Um, that's a pretty good thing, you know. <laughs> and so, these early Brahmins, um, their wealth was not material, it was study, and whatever degree of practice they were involved in um, led them to happiness <laughs> and freedom from rebirth in third density, and presumably rebirth in fourth, fifth, sixth density, because they were also doing meditation. So they didn't despise what was prepared for them, meaning they had gratitude. They were happy to receive. You want to give me something? I'm happy to receive it. Um, I may not want to eat it, in this case of uh, prepared food, but um, they had gratitude. They were humble. They were um, reasonable. <laughs> gratitude is reasonable. When somebody makes a gift to you or gives us something sincerely, it's reasonable <laughs> to say thank you and appreciate it. Not just say thank you, but really feel some gratitude. Hey, hey, thank you. You did something nice for me? That's nice. Getting nice is nice, and it's nice to say that's nice. Um, nice is a, not a great word, but uh, <laughs> it's certainly reasonable to have gratitude for... Um, uh, sincere uh, receiving or sincere giving the to us of something valuable or something heartfully offered um, and ingratitude like an ungrateful bastard 
is a is a dummy. Is just a damaged, dark, tangled mind. So, uh, don't be a dummy. So, uh, meanwhile, they were given a lot of stuff. <clears throat> they were given lands and kingdoms. I mean, lands and kingdoms honored them. They got clothes and bedding and dwellings. Uh, they were protecting their principles. They were protected by the law of the kings at that time. And <clears throat> the because they were so virtuous, uh, and the kings, <laughs> or the leaders, were virtuous at that ancient time, um, their virtue was recognized and appreciated and codified into law that was protective to them. Uh, akin to uh, Putin bringing back the Orthodox monasteries in Russia. And Orthodox Catholic, Orthodox Christian, Eastern Orthodox, um, Russia, Serbia, Greece. Um, he knows <laughs> he's right. Uh, he's got some advisors. It is an important matter for the fate of a nation to have true monasticism alive and well, flourishing and protected. Big deal, metaphysically. A very big deal. In terms of sexuality here, um, there's a strong encouragement of celibacy. Um, they didn't go to another caste, meaning they weren't... Um, when there were married, when, when you know, there are Brahmins who are uh, celibate in the forest, there are Brahmins who are partially celibate, there are Brahmins who are uh, making families. Uh, but this notion of uh, choosing their wives is, uh, like Bhikkhu Bodhi explained, um, it may well be that uh, this is some kind of support Gautama's encouragement of the caste system <clears throat> it may well, it depends you know, I don't know how <laughs> uh, it, first of all, I don't know if there was a golden age but presumably um, how far back could we go, right? I think maybe Gautama's talking about ancient ancient other worlds but in this presumable golden age um, perhaps I mean, Gautama, is, it, perhaps the caste system looked different than it does did then, did at Gautama's time, where the Brahmins had already fallen. <clears throat> I don't know. Um, he certainly spoke out strongly against it in his time. But here, he's sort of saying that at that earlier time, when the Brahmins were um, highly ethical, virtuous, restrained, and... Um, seriously helping themselves and helping others, the caste system was protective for them. Uh, they didn't buy their wives. I guess they were doing that by his time. Uh, it's a nice phrase. I'm sure Tanisaro kind of mm, massaged this a little bit, but he wrote, um, or he said, Gautama, living together from mutual love, having come together, they found joy together. Tanisaro is a good writer and a translator and monk and fellow. <clears throat> and this is sort of ideal union partnership where they're living together, there's love, uh, and they find joy um, in the, under the, um, the uh, structures of uh, marriage uh, legalized by the state. Um, but uh, how much was there oppression going on? I don't know. 
Was the caste system non-oppressive at that time? Maybe. I don't know. There's other metaphysics involved as well, which are complicated and uh, not so politically correct for today, for discussion. But <clears throat> Brahmins of old practiced the search for knowledge and conduct. And in many ways, this is, um, I think, uh, um, an interesting... <laughs> it's Gautama's sort of uh, praise... Uh, limited praise, <laughs> uh, qualified praise for original Brahmanism. Uh, original, they're uh, of the old golden age. Um, qualified because it's explaining what they were searching for was knowledge and conduct. To become seers who um, perfect their understanding of what is and their conduct or right conduct, right speech and action. Uh, that's not the same as complete and perfect enlightenment. Or I think he's sort of mm, insinuating here that they were not going all the way to complete and perfect awakening or nirvana. But um, that's not a problem because uh, <clears throat> uh, to develop knowledge and conduct morally, ethically, right, rightly, to such a degree that you end up being reborn in 4th and 5th and 6th density is uh, not much of a problem. It's kind of a good thing, obviously. So in terms of sexuality, there are all sorts of... This may be the ancient idea that aside from the time after menstruation, they, those Brahmins who were family people, lay people, didn't have sex. So that the al allowed time for sex for a layman at that point was after menstruation? I don't know looks like something like that. Anyway, what they were involved in was uh, the holy life based in virtue. Straightforward, mild, austere, composed, harmless, enduring. Very <laughs> admirable qualities. <clears throat> Straightforward, not tricky and deceptive. Mild, meaning uh, peaceful heart. Austere, meaning um, having dumped what I ought to dump meaning, not take a dump, but make a dump. <laughs> a dump of the unnecessary and the trivial and the pointless or the futile or the fruitless. Uh, get rid of it. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean self-harming uh, or self-denying. It's actually uh, unnecess un in unnecessity. In necessity? Unnecessary? <laughs> Uh, 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 avoid eliminating the unnecessary. It's not uh, self-suppression. It's actually avoidance and elimination of the unnecessary and the harmful. Very different than um, self-mortification or any kind of uh, uh, anger-based restraint not an anger. One can have much restraint and renunciation and detachment without any anger at all, actually. That's, that's the higher level, is uh, just not interested in all sorts of things that are associated with attachment. Composed, harmless, enduring, and um, the foremost was celibate all life long. And now that may, I don't know why there's a lot of emphasis on sexuality. It may be that the Brahmins of his day um, were very sexual or wrongly sexual. <clears throat> then <clears throat> they asked for what they 
we're getting a very similar to what the Buddhist monk gets: food, uh, medicine, robe, basically food and robe, um, medicine and shelter. That's about it. I think those are the four provisions. Anyway, uh, they got the same kind of provisions for the the ones that were forest yogi practic- practitioners. They collected it all in line with rectitude. They're not greedy. Uh, they made sacrifice, but they didn't harm cows uh, because they loved cows. And um, that's back to Hindu uh, cow reverence. Giving food, strength, beauty, happiness. Food is milk. And strength um, actually is the medicine or urine. Uh, beauty and happiness, I'm not sure. But maybe because of the food and the strength. Knowing this line of reasoning, they didn't hurt the cows. <clears throat> and an interesting line, delicate, with large bodies, beautiful, prestigious, Brahmins were committed to standards of what should and shouldn't be done in line with their principles. Right? So right and wrong in line with their teachings. Uh, I, when I go to India, or when, I, when I've gone to India twice, frankly, I see a lot of, um, particularly men, with um, very, well, very fine physique, um, either facial uh, architecture or body morphology, the, the, the bodily structure. This notion of delicate, large bodies, beautiful, prestigious. <clears throat> uh, I've seen a lot of very common folk in India. Common folk meaning not, not the rich and the powerful or something. Ordinary people, in some sense, with very fine features. Um, strong, healthy bodies. And um, a, very kind of handsome faces <clears throat> um, in the sense that, that they've done, they have some good karma behind that. There's some good karma that leads to a strong, healthy body and a well-proportioned um, facial architecture. <clears throat> There's something going on there. And I would imagine it comes from a whole lot of them doing a whole lot of right, uh, right Brahmanism uh, over many lifetimes. That doesn't mean that their view is right, <laughs> or their views of many other things are right, and people can make their they make their fate in their own in each lifetime. But there seems to be a, a interesting carry through from past life right conduct um, that I see appearing in the physical the physical appearing in the physical manifestation of of many bodies there physical bodies in that country. <laughs> so, anyway, <clears throat> uh, as long as that was going on, humanity prospered in happiness, of course. And so, uh, you create your own reality at the individual and the collective level. Uh, beings are the inheritors, the heirs to their karma. And so, uh, who I was, what I did, how I lived is my ancestry that leads to the programmed catalyst of the current lifetime. It's not a one-to-one, it's very, very complicated, but there's a direct relation, and that's called multi-incarnational karmic carry-through. And uh, that's the way it goes. And <clears throat> um, the basis here is commit commitment to standards of what should and shouldn't be done in line with one's principles. So values uh, in line with how well one knows creation, how, how clear one's view 
of um, existence and experience and the the way by which um, experience is fashioned. It's not just how I respond, <clears throat> but um, what I am due uh, by my karmic ancestry. And that pertains to the collective as well. And so, with spiritual principles, or, or from ethical conduct, meaning... Um, Knowing, doing what one should do and not doing what one shouldn't do, which comes from some kind of view. Um, there's further development of view, <laughs> and that is a further development of principles and values that then leads to right conduct or speech and action and livelihood, and increasingly clear right view or understanding of creation that brings benefit lifetime after lifetime to the individual and the collective and so as long as um, as long as Dhamma is uh, living uh, as long as beings live in line with universal Dhamma or the universal laws of um, what brings what what is indeed to our long-term welfare and benefit then the individual and society set themselves up for reward or for um, supportive karmic return right all sorts of positive quali positive qualities or um, features of one's life or features of life um, are inevitable come naturally by uh, <clears throat> a life in conformity <clears throat> with spiritual principles of morality, ethics, uh, harmlessness, obviously, shila, uh, and that's to the long-term benefit of the individual and the collective. But perversion came among them, meaning a little chink in the armor and a little sense of, hmm, jealousy, envy. Look what those kings have. Here I am in the forest <laughs> with a fine-featured body and a peaceful mind, more or less. Uh, and people give me stuff, and I got it, and I'm fine. But, hmm, over there, I see, hmm, they got lots of good stuff. Splendor, the beautiful women, and women with beautiful robes and clothing. Beautiful horses, and great chariots, and then embroideries, and then big houses and homes. Well-planned, well-laid-out, nice stuff. Lavish human wealth surrounded by circles of cows. Hmm, what do the cows do? And so, all sorts of things. Excellent women, circles of cows, lavish human wealth. Uh, then they, <laughs> their greed got the best of them. They wrote new hymns, went to the kings, and screamed, sacrifice, sacrifice. You got so much, you better do this to keep it and get more. The kings knowing even less than the Brahmins, <clears throat> as politicos know less than their handlers or their uh, sponsors, um, fall right along and did sacrifice of horses and humans and cows. Okay. And so <clears throat> then they gave more stuff to the Brahmins, uh, who became increasingly like the kings. So... 
This is called Corrupt Human Religion. Corrupt Earth Human Religion. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's the case in every one of them, nearly, I think, perhaps every one of them, including Buddhism, where um, the priestly caste uh, emulates the the ruling class and becomes increasingly political and uh, conniving and strategizing to get more stuff like the upper political leadership ruling class and do what they're told to get more stuff and um, end up killing a lot so then it goes on even further and goes full tilt and that's what we see at the see at the current time today is the the bridge between the third and the fourth stages of uh, extreme uh, what what Bhikkhu Bodhi says uh, the deeper fall and then after the fall so <laughs> uh, we're clearly uh, in the cusp at the cusp between the deeper fall and after the fall or the deeper fall and the um, dramatic catastrophic consequences of that fall which is called after the fall um, or the deepest fall the fall in this case is the fall of the Brahmins from their original principles from their original uh, deeply moral spiritual ways of living and after the fall in the, as a fourth stage here equals um, the collapse of society around them. So, then those Brahmins had lots of stuff. They get the houses and they emulate the ruling class and we, <laughs> we see it all the time, right? Um, the mega churches and um, the, little, the little Buddhas or the living Buddhas, uh, so-called self-professed, who um, are millionaires and uh, have private jets and um, get more stuff for me and me and me and their children and their relatives and uh, they become uh, you know pseudo uh, pseudo ruling class um, religious semi tyrants <laughs> quasi tyrant pseudo ruling class. Um, political religious leadership all over the place and uh, much people go for that because they're impressed with power and wealth and they're like those early Brahmins who are thinking hmm look those kings have big good stuff I want it too and um, many of the people I think in the cults and in the uh, flowered social organization mega churches and uh, religious cults not just a cult but a, um, a mainstream <laughs> religious organizations uh, of, e of each of the traditions all of them Buddhism, Hinduism uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam uh, I mean there are corrupt Native American religious leaders too <laughs> so uh, not one group or religion or uh, ethnicity has any um, lock hold on corruption um, it's um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely um, yeah worldly power uh, triggers massive moral decline in 3D repeaters in this world I think that's a little more qualified so 
they wanted more, 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 and said uh, sacrifice more, more, more. Then they ended up uh, encouraging the kings to sacrifice many hundred thousands of cows. And now we get into the uh, metaphysics. Wow. I've been yakking a long time here. Um, the metaphysics of that. Um, maybe, maybe I'll carry this on to next week, because this is already an hour 11 or 12. Um, I hope it has not been tedious, but it's certainly interesting to me. Because we're not just talking about um, Brahmana Dhamika Sutta, we're talking about the current world, and we're talking about the uh, field of spiritual spirituality and religious organization. The field of religion and spirituality is the uh, collective of multiple religions and their sects and their groupings and their leaders and their ways and the consequences of their ways and what's taken as normative or proper um, in the world today versus a golden age or an ideal of right living and uh, knowing and seeing and getting the fruit of that uh, virtuous um, right view based living uh, which is called um, good karma, bringing good fruit. So I think that I will freely give myself the chance to uh, continue this sutta next week rather than try to wrap it up in a few minutes. Um, I think it's very interesting because <laughs> we're involved, we're all involved in all of this in some ways. And um, I'll give myself the freedom to speak fully. Uh, I hope it's been useful. It's a lot of reflection and I think we can learn a lot. I can learn a lot from this. So with that said, um, here closes um, Brahmana um, Brahmana Dhamika Sutta Part 1. Next week I'll do Part 2 and um, further uh, elaborate some observations and comments on uh, the Sutta <laughs> and its implications for the world of today and us here at this time. So, anyway, I hope you're well. Thank you for being here. Take good care of yourselves, and good night.